0: Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Drazer Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to go to Counterpunch Plus and uh, get your subscription. That is the way that you support Counterpunch. That is the way that you get access to all of those great features, all of those great columns we used to have in a print magazine, all available for you and a lot more over at counterpunch plus and by the way if you didn't get in on our fun drive now would be another great time to donate to counterpunch to keep us going it's been 30 years we hope for at least another 30. So uh, we really, really appreciate all of your support. And of course, we appreciate all of those great voices on the left that uh, we are privileged enough to publish and to provide. So one of those is with me today. It's Kali Akuno. He is a regular on this show, I guess, at this point. Kali is a co-founder of Cooperation Jackson, such an important political uh, initiative going on in this country. He is a co-author of a brand new book that I really recommend everybody get copies of, Jackson Rising Redux lessons on building the future in the present. Uh, the website is cooperationjackson.org. Make sure you bookmark that one and make sure you donate to Cooperation Jackson. Cali welcome back to Counterpunch. Pleasure to be here as always. Thank you so much. And as always, you're one of the people I lean on for this kind of analysis, both in terms of what's going on in this country, but also how we build alternatives to what seems like a collapsing system. So let's talk about Jackson, Cooperation Jackson, as an alternative. I think we probably want to start by you know, sort of leading our listeners into what this thing is. Not everyone has heard of it. Not everyone knows what it is. So Callie, what is Cooperation Jackson? Cooperation Jackson
1: is a, a vehicle uh, that comes out of a particular strategic framework. I wanna start there, because we'll, we'll come back to that, uh, I think in a little bit. But it's a product of uh, the Jackson Cush plan. And it is the division of that plan, which is rooted on creating a solidarity economy with its aim towards building economic democracy as a prelude towards a socialist transition. Now that's a mouthful. And what it looks like on the day-to-day and in the real, it starts with our base foundation, which is a community land trust the Fannie Lou Hamer Community Land Trust, which has over 40 properties, commercial, uh, farming, uh, and residential. Uh, And that is our baseline, right? And then the other core division of what we do and what we have are several interconnected and interdependent worker cooperatives. And so there's a, a green team cooperative, which is like lawn care, Uh, There's a Freedom Farms, uh, which is kind of, in many respects, like the flagship. Uh, There's Zero Waste, and then there's the the Community Production Cooperative. So those four, you know, basically, when I say interconnected and interdependent, we've tried to specifically design them to work in complement with each other to be a part of kind of the carbon cycles, very concretely and, and directly, you know, to try to reduce, you know, uh, uh, use and consumption, and recycle like all the organic material to the greatest extent possible that we can to kind of regenerate the source and keep a vibrant kind of local economy based upon a certain level of food security, with the aim and objective of of making our community food sovereign. Now, the long term piece of what we're striving for. Uh, you know, just so folks are clear, we're trying to advance a model wherein, you know, we can do to scale a complement of local-based use production, right? Producing what we need for our immediate community based upon the resources available in our community, but then also have enough of a surplus that we can sell to kind of external markets to be able to both garner some income and, and bring in some more capital to extend and expand upon the projects that we have. Uh, We've been going at this now for nine years, right? So we're still a relatively young uh, organization. Uh, And, you know, we've made, I think, some very significant uh, strides in the objectives that we've set up uh, for ourselves, but we got a a long way to go. And, you know, just to try to, you know, we'll, we'll get, various phases of the talk today, but one of the things about the talk about the book, one of the particular pieces about the book, the Jackson Rise and Redux is to share in our direct experience, because what we want folks to be clear, number one, we want more projects out there, you know, uh, in the United States, but in out the world, following a similar course of development, because what we need to do is create, you know, our own value and supply chains. To be able to kind of create a real alternative, and not just some local one-off kind of project, however well it may be doing, you know, uh, in in our environment, right? Because we are very clear, and we'll talk about this also as well. Uh, a project like ours cannot exist in isolation; it can easily get crushed, right? And so, this is to like spread the gospel, if you if you will, try to get more people to both understand the challenges. Uh, of what it takes to try to put on something like this, not as a thing to scare anybody off, but to just be real with folks about how hard you're going to have to work, how many capitalists, you know, uh, socialization, you know, uh, um, uh, points of orientation, socialization, worldview that it really takes to to do something different, right, and to try something different, new set of social relations. It's not easy. And we wanted to convey that message with the encouragement of getting folks to take up this task, wherever you may be, but to not do so naively, not to do so blindly, and to not repeat some of the mistakes that we've made.
0: I want to talk uh, most of our time today. I want to focus on things that are going on right now and uh, in the very recent past. But since we are starting with the origin of Cooperation Jackson, can you just tell us a little bit about who Chokwe Lumumba was and what role he played in establishing this model or at least opening the space for this model and uh, how Cooperation Jackson evolved after his passing?
1: Right, right. Well, let let me put us all like in a a particular frame. Uh, The Jackson Cush Plan is a particular uh, stratagem, if you would, that emerges out of the New African Independence Movement. Uh, And for those of you who don't know that the New African Independence Movement is one of the particular kind of tendencies that comes out of the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, It's a tendency within this movement, which is as old as the movement itself which is based upon kind of situating, you know, people of African descent on a solid land base, primarily located in the Southeastern portion of what is now the United States. Uh, and to the aim and objective, you know, as a basic through line for all the different kind of forces and tendencies is to attain a level of self-determination for black people. And this is just kind of one of, uh, of, one of many strategies developed over the course of time, this one just, I think, uh, uh, through a course of a lot of work, a lot of trial and error in Mississippi, specifically over a 50 year period, you know, uh, that choker was one of the people instrumental uh, uh, in kind of executing over that 50 year period. just got to a particular level of maturation where that movement was, or our movement was able to kind of test some ideas through the electoral arena. And one of the things that uh, in 2008 we really wanted to test on the hills, just so folks are clear about some of the history, on the heels of our work, uh, in uh, primarily in New Orleans, but in, throughout Louisiana and throughout Mississippi, after Hurricane Katrina. A couple of years after Hurricane Katrina, when we were starting to see the long-term structural and political impacts that it was going to have on our communities. And we wanted to kind of extend that to challenge some of that. But also to test out like I said, our ideas like how after 50 years of organizing, how resonant were our ideas how it, it, you know popular and, and acceptable and palatable uh, were they to the people in our community at large And so to get in the electoral arena in many respects was a test of that right And uh, you know to be clear and specific because I want folks to know the history which is important, you know uh, Chokwe, uh and myself, uh, we were both members of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement and the New African People's Organization. Those are organizations that he founded. I, I kind of came on as a, you know, uh, uh, junior member some years uh, later. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, we come out of that particular struggle. And in 2008, uh, myself and, and Kamal Franklin, I want to give him respect and props. We were the co uh anchors uh, uh at that time of the malcolm x grassroots movement and many of you may know Kamal for some of the, the 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 key principal work he's doing around cop city right now uh in the land of georgia keeping this struggle and the legacy going forward uh you know we were very clear and determined to try to test these ideas and we we put forward to choke way hey we wouldn't want to test the some some particular components of this Jackson could plan model in particular electoral component. And we think you should run for office. now to his credit, Choco initially said no, right? He was like, no, I don't no, not, not particularly wanna do that. And I think that's clear because it speaks to a certain level both integrity and, and political principle that he was pushed first by us. And then once we put that concept out by the organization and then later by the broader social movement the, the, that we had helped to build and in this case, that you would call that so that movement was the, the Jackson People's Assembly, which had been around and been in existence basically, really since 1991. But in that kind of phase in 2008, uh, it had kind of really reemerged in 2005 uh, to help service the needs of those who have been forced, basically, you know, in exile from New Orleans and other southern, you know, Gulf Coast communities. Who were now in Jackson and scattered, scattered, you know, forcibly throughout large parts of the country, but mainly Houston, Jackson, Dallas, and Atlanta. That's where most of the folks who were internally displaced where They wind up being, so that people's assembly had been in motion since that time, and then we put the idea out, you know, uh, to folks in the community. Said, you know, basically, hell yeah, we need to, we need to do that. The time is now. These are some the clear aims and objectives that we had in the city to meet some of our our challenges. Around, uh, particularly around the chronic underemployment and the decaying infrastructure uh, that existed in Jackson, which was well known then in 2008. We'll come back to some of where we are with that you know in, a, in, a, in a shortly, um, but you know the this Jackson Cush plan. Uh, I want folks to know and understand initially the version that is now out that you can read in the Jackson Rising Redux and in, in the earlier work that initially started as an internal document, right? That's something that we wanted to build. But then when we became clear that we were going to run Chokwe and that we were going to experiment with the blog complement of this plan, we put it out publicly. And so the the plan called for independent electoral politics, building the solidarity economy, that that is cooperation Jackson's kind of lane, you know, reason for being. And then the other thing was, you know, building broad people's assemblies as a vehicle to to engage and build participatory democracy in our community, direct democracy in our community. And the aim and objective there is to not be subject to the basic kind of mechanisms and limitations of bourgeois democracy, but to push it, to exceed it, to go beyond it, to start and, you know, elicitate an experience and execute a certain level of just direct people's power right and what is this people's power for the people's power in the one hand we were trying to be very clear at that time that uh we wanted to uh blunt the repressive edges you know of the state basically the police and and you know their their repressive you know role overall within within the community the role that they play in capitalism in general and that to try this you know knowing that you know, a winning office and being in the mayor. We were very clear. Uh, we want everybody else to be clear. That gave us some governing power, but we made a distinction and still make a distinction between having a certain level of governing power from having state power. We did not have state power, right? And I don't want anybody being under the illusion that we did in Jackson or that we do now with, with Chokwe and Tarla We have some governing power, right? And the state of Mississippi constantly reminds us Right, the neo-confederates neo, neo Confederates, they constantly remind us that uh we don't have uh uh we don't have state power, right? Uh, and we can get to, get to that later, but those were the basic kind of three components that this overall plan was executed with this, the people's assembly trying to be the lead vehicle, right, to build this kind of power. Uh, and in the course of this in 2008, we first initially put Chokwe out there, you know, was trying to push him to run for mayor, but the Malcolm X Grass movement had already committed to someone running for mayor. So we didn't want to go against that word when we said, okay, well, let's do a, a, a lower level experiment and run for city council. And in 2009, Chokwe won that council seat. But we were always clear, you know, from the beginning that we wanted more of the executive power, right? And in Jackson, so folks, you know, as a, as a, a strong person or a strong man, mayor type of governance, which means, you know, the mayor, uh, uh, gets to, uh, forms a budget and he gets to execute that budget and our city council has a certain level of approval of the budget and then just line item vetoes, uh, uh, if they have a majority to block certain initiatives within the context going forward, but pretty much the whole execution the framing of government is between him and, and, uh, the, the, the structures that he then gets to govern. So. We wanted that particular power to be able to execute a broad program. You know, we articulated basically what we wound up becoming called the Jackson Just Transition Plan. That was an objective to try to make, you know, the city uh, a zero waste, a zero emission city, basically by 2030 with some core commitments that we were doing there. And then for, you know, uh, uh, there to be uh, some very structural changes in both procurement uh, and in hiring and setting up a cooperative fund, as well as creating a department that would do some training and support level work from within the actual city, that that would help to develop uh, cooperatives. Uh, And then we wanted to try to change and articulate like basically a new framework for the governance of Jackson by creating uh, a a human rights uh, charter for the city uh, as well as a human rights commission. And we wanted this human rights commission to really have some broad uh, powers, but particularly the power to hire and uh, uh, fire, you know, uh, the, the police chiefs and the, to, to basically take them to task for any and all violations executed against the community, right? This was that blunting piece. And then, you know, we were trying to, within this initial vision, trying to move uh, to democratize as much as the the city as possible in a direct way, right? And we had a phrase that we were going to try to make all the the, the principal questions of governance mass questions, right? To do our part, our best to use the kind of the microphone, if you would, of being in the mayor's office to really be kind of an educator in chief, if you would, to just thoroughly explain to folks, hey, this is how your taxes are being spent. This is how your taxes are being raised. This is how this is, you know, so folks could directly be informed and then intervene through the People's Assemblies and through the Human Rights Council and Commission to be able to do that. And then the final ultimate expression of that, uh, you know, there were many things, but you know, just the kind of core pieces that I, I want to end was we wanted to set the city up that over a course of time, we were subjected to a human rights budgeting process, right? That we would have as much of the budget as possible be subjected to a broad participatory framework of setting the priorities of what the city should allocate. You know, it's it's precious resources, it's limited resources to under, with an understanding that, you know, a budget is a reflection of your values and your priorities, right? And so like most cities, you know, if, if you look at your, you know, the most municipalities, the largest line item budget is the police, right? And I want that to sink in. So is that our, who is that? Per, you know, protect, right? Who is that serving uh, for that to be the majority kind of expense, if you would, in in the city. So we wanted to counter that. And so Chokwe ran on this platform, was elected basically on this platform, but unfortunately only had eight months in office to execute the core, any core aspects of their program because he unfortunately died of some, Mysterious circumstances, if you would. He died. Uh, they say basically of a heart attack um, uh, in February of two uh, thousand of twenty fourteen. So just a couple of years. He got elected in twenty thirteen. So less than a year into office, uh, he died. He transitioned, and so we wanted to. To this is those of us who, who, myself and the cohort who started cooperation Jackson. We wanted everybody in our community to know. That that was like a, not a one-off event, that it wasn't just a, a one-trick kind of a pony, that there was real, you know, uh teeth and intentionality behind uh this plan. And so we were already taking steps to launch Cooperation Jackson, or something like Cooperation Jackson. We didn't have that name initially. Uh, and we were moving in that direction, and we were one of the ways in which we were trying to emerge this, you know, working with Chokeway was we we pulled together this piece called uh, the Jackson Rising New Economies Conference. Uh, and that wind up being held in May of 2014, May 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Uh, and so we wanted to go forward, but mind you, this is, this is we started organizing and announcing this conference in October of 2013. So this was supposed to be like a big coming out of our broad kind of solidarity economy program and platform that we had the city council already lined up uh, to approve that, in fact, the day that Chalkway died, uh, there were two major things that were on the city council's uh, uh, agenda to be approved. One was the public works uh, 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 director, and for us, so I want folks to know at that time, public works was the largest line item, you know, kind of budget, largest sector of the budget. So again, talking about the priorities, you know, I think the city at that time already had some of its core priorities uh, uh, in right perspective, by that being the largest and trying to deal with our immense, you know, and decaying infrastructure that was well known already then. But somebody we wanted to put in there who came from our political orientation, came from our framework, Uh he was going to be nominated and approved. We had already, Chokwe was a master at, at you know, uh knowing what, counting the votes before we actually had the city council votes, I think in in. All that time, there was only one vote we ever kind of got uh, surprised by. And that was kind of a a very intentional effort by a block of folks on the city council uh, to try to balance some power. So we kind of, uh, you know, we didn't like it, but we kind of understood what what that was about, right? Uh, uh, And then kind of negotiated. But he he knew beforehand, long before he put something up by doing one-on-ones, Chokwe did one-on-ones with every city council member for at least an hour every week, every week, right? Uh, Trying to be, and the point is trying to build a broad consensus, right? And like actually demonstrating, trying to practice democracy, hey, let's put everything, you know, like on the table, you know, and then the the certain kind of rules, he couldn't pull them all together in side meetings because it's against, against the principles of You know, having secret meetings and all that kind of stuff. But I want to just give folks a perspective of what it is and what it looks like to try to do you more radical kind of governance within the limited confines of a bourgeois, you know, order, right? And so that the day that he died, Willie uh, uh, was supposed to be uh, 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 he was going to be elected to to run our uh, public works department, and then this whole proposal that I had laid out of uh, creating. You know this, this, uh, uh, this revolving loan fund, uh, this educational kind of uh, department, and then some, some new policies and regulations in and around both city procurement and hiring. All that was going to be approved, uh, but uh, unfortunately, he died before the city council meeting, and neither one of those ever saw the light of day. So, knowing this, cooperation Jackson, we say, was born prematurely. Right, because we wanted those particular things in place to give a certain level of both material support, uh, but also, you know, some some uh, infrastructure kind of capacity to the initiative. So Cooperation Jackson was born without that, and we often say it was kind of born somewhat prematurely. Uh, but we pressed on nevertheless to keep advancing the Jackson Cush plan. I think we made the right decision. Definitely, you know, it, it made us encounter more challenges than we had originally. And vision, But I think we learn more from uh, doing those types of uh, uh, having to face and deal with those types of, of challenges of, of not having any level of municipal support and having to go our own, you know, gives you a deeper appreciation of, you know, with, with any kind of municipal regime, what to ask, why to ask, or why to stay away from it at different times and being clear strategically. And I think we've kind of come up with a certain level of mastery. Of that, in the course of our nine years. But that's in short, uh, uh, you know, the basic kind of birth story of of Cooperation Jackson and where and how Chokwe Lamoon was directly involved in this construction.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask that question because I think that, you know, I've I've heard many interviews with you and others that are part of your circle, you know, talking about Cooperation Jackson. But I think that sometimes what gets lost is the real nitty gritty hard work of actually building all of this because it's nice to look at it from a sort of 30,000 foot level. But you guys have really been in the trenches fighting localized political battles all along. And I mean, we've even seen some Recently, I know. Well, actually, before we go to the break, why don't you just tell us a little bit about? Um, well, actually, let me ask you this question first before I tell. Ta- before I ask about recent events in Jackson, why don't you give us a class-based analysis of Jackson? Because I think that many people, mm-hmm. especially those mm-hmm. people who don't live in the South in the United uh, of the United States, may. Have something of a, of a distorted understanding of what the reality of Jackson and other cities in that part of the country as well, but Jackson especially, what it's really like. So tell us, what is right. it really like? Okay.
1: Well, you you know, there's there's a class and race analysis that you got to have to really understand Jackson. So let me start with with a, you know, on the surface is the, the most obvious thing, which is Jackson is is roughly. Uh, uh, 80% black, over 80% black. Uh, it's roughly about 50% quote unquote white. Uh, and then, you know, 5% roughly other, right. Um, and that's, you know, uh, Latino, uh, Southeast Asian, uh, East Asian, uh, uh, some, some, uh, migrant workers from Africa, primarily, primarily Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, some South Africans. Um, and those particular groups of folks, uh, you know, well, then there's a small number of indigenous folks and there's a small number of what we call the Mississippi Chinese, which is a population that got brought in uh, in the mid 19th century to work on uh, the railroads, right? Uh, uh, after the period of chattel slavery kind of formally came to an end. Uh, so Mississippi was one of those areas that was had a high and heavy concentration of Ch- Chinese immigrants. Now been here, you know, 150 so so many years and have taken deep root, particularly up in, in the Mississippi Delta. So there's there's elements of them and their community which are here. Um so you have that kind of racial demographic, then you have the class overlay. And so the the, the black community is almost completely working class. Uh, now that is not to say that there isn't a black petty bourgeois uh, force in Jackson. There is, uh, uh, and it is that force which fundamentally kind of runs. It is the political class, uh, part none in, in in Jackson, right? And I would include some of our forces you know, that were part of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. Uh, that come from those particular kind of class strata, and we, you know, were kind of very conscious in in a sense. Uh, those who had that positioning of committing, or we, we, we had a program that was articulated around committing class suicide, following you know the the logic and orientation of revolutionary thinkers like Amlakar Cabral, right, who was the leader of, of the PIGC uh, uh, in Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. Uh, and I want to be clear, because the folks to look up his works said now back in print. There's a new uh, uh, printing of Return to the Source, and it's definitely worth the read. Um, so, but we were very much influenced, you know, by his train of thought in that particular orientation as to what revolutionary minded folks who are drawn, you know, from that particular kind of class sector that we can play, that's not a vacillating role. It's not a, you know, flip on and off uh, role to be very clear clear that we were making commitments towards the working class and having the work, having and developing the working class to be the principal leadership of Jackson, right, to move the politics in the community for now within that you still also have to do some breakdown about what the working class actually looks like in Jackson you know we have a working class which is chronically underemployed and there are significant sections which are just permanently unemployed or which have never really had a the job and we you know have a lot of just hard evidence that, that we can point to which says at any given time Right, Uh, particularly over the last like 20 to 25 years, roughly about 50% of the the community uh, is either underemployed or unemployed. Right, so that means there's some pretty entrenched poverty in the city of Jackson. Right, now uh, you need to contrast that with another set of forces. Right. And so Jackson has this weird dynamic from uh, how it's played, how its development has played out, uh, particularly since the 1980s. Well, actually, I would say since the 1960s. Uh, And that Jackson became a majority black city not until the 1980s. So places like Oakland, places like Baltimore, like Cleveland. Uh, You know, as a result of the quote unquote great migration, they became majority black shortly after World War II, some even before there. And these were folks who were leaving from Mississippi, leaving from Texas, leaving from Oklahoma, leaving from Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia, northern parts of Florida, uh, North Carolina and Virginia, primarily in parts of Kentucky, heading uh, uh, to Chicago to St. Louis, to Detroit, primarily to work in the industrial heartland areas that the U.S. empire had constructed, you know, beginning back in the 1870s, right? Uh, Which had fully emerged in the course of their kind of development by the 1940s as a result of World War II and the kind of the post-war boom, where all of the United States core kind of uh, economic competitors were taken off the scene for a while, that primarily being the UK, Germany and Japan, right? So, black folks who had come from these southern areas occupied core constituencies of the of the working class, the industrial working class, for that for that period of about fifty years, roughly from nineteen forty five, roughly until like the nineteen eighties, when a massive program of deindustrialization was intentionally pursued in the United States to break the back of the working class, but particularly the the more radical sectors. Of the black working class that had clearly emerged and become politicized beginning in the 1950s with the highlight of the 1960s and 70s with the black liberation movement all the, the urban revolts that happened from newark to harlem to la to detroit uh cleveland you know many places in between uh these were striking major core areas and then you had organizations that emerged on the scene in the late 1960s you know to challenge you know some of the the Uh, deeply reformist politics that had emerged in in more left forces from a generation before, like the Black, uh, uh, the Revolution, uh, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which emerged out of Detroit, what was actually a regional-wide organization that had a profound impact on, on the workers' movement for at least a generation, you know, from the late 1960s into the late 1970s. Well, put that all in context in Jackson. Jackson, was never a, you know, Mississippi is an agricultural state uh, at one point because of of uh, the nature of chattel slavery and the nature of the global economy in the early part of the, the 19th century, Mississippi was actually the richest state in the union on the basis of slave labor and the export of cotton, uh, uh, tobacco uh, to a lesser extent, sugar cane to a lesser extent, indigo and rice, right? But mainly cotton. Cotton was king here. Uh, And that just produced a major fortune uh, for the planter elite, that ruling class of Mississippi. Now, I went all that to say, to come back to, to talk to about a core constituent of Jackson that remains. So during the 1950s, the working class segments of Jackson, white working class segments, they left the community fairly early. They first kind of started to migrate when Jackson started to become black into the, to South Jackson. So if you go to Jackson, you come in Jackson and you look at kind of the uneven development, right? You'll see like a lot of just, you know, loosely poorly construed houses that were kind of built up there. Most of them are still occupied, but why are they there? Why this infrastructure is the way it is? Because it was a, a certain level of working class white flight into South Jackson that then built it. But then as, as black folks, you know, were forced into those communities, you know, by the the kind of the planter elite, which not only wrote, runs the plantation, but owns most of the property and industry and, and, and retail things that exist in Jackson still to this day, you know, forced the black community into to West Jackson, into South Jackson. And then that resulted in the white working class communities, primarily moving over to Pearl, uh, parts originally to the North, uh, um, and to flow with. you know, these are the communities uh, uh, to our east. And what that left, <laughs> and what you have in, in Jackson is the white community that is there is very affluent, extremely affluent. So you have, you know, uh, in some respects, in Jackson, you know, when I, when people come in, I often give them a, a tour, right? Uh, like the Tale of Two Cities tour. Like this, is, this is our side of town. This is how we live. This is what's going on. And, and but before you just think it's all, you know, deep Mississippi poverty that you didn't kind of heard. Like no, no, no. There's tremendous wealth here. Do not be f- confused. Rather than take them to other areas, like no, you see mansions that would rival anything that you might see in the lifestyles of the rich and famous in L.A. or up in the Hamptons. Like it's right here. Don't be confused that you might not see it. It might not be portrayed, but those of us who live here and have to come to terms with this nature of class struggle that actually is existing, we know where this wealth is and we've known where it is because a lot of our grandmothers, right, used to work in those places as as nannies and maids in, in those things. So it's not something that's unknown to the Black community. It's very known. So you have this weird kind of contrast in, in Jackson of a very affluent, you know, white community, a deeply impoverished black community and then this kind of unstable black petty bourgeois class, which, you know, is trying to negotiate between these two dominant class forces, right, uh, uh, to manage the city and to try to like take off some of the spoils that come off of the tax base on the one hand and then what what exists and can be, uh um Kind of either appropriated or granted or extracted from the, the the larger apparatus of the overall dominant economic engines within in Jackson and the industry there, and I want folks to understand it so we can then move on. Jackson is a transport hub. Again, I said, remember, Miss, Mississippi is primarily agricultural state, but Jackson. Number one, you gotta understand, it's a city that was intentionally constructed to be a midpoint of transportation along the Mississippi River to move goods and services from Chicago to New Orleans and from Atlanta to Dallas-Fort Worth. That is what Jackson is, fundamentally as a structural entity. And that was first articulated by its relationship to the Mississippi River and the barges in those system. And then Jackson is on the other end of another river, the Pearl River, which defines its, its uh, eastern border. And uh, the other component uh, is late, the later construction of that, which was the railroad. So Jackson is at the intersection of a whole network of railroads that got built basically from the, 19, the 1830s uh, roughly until like the 1950s, a whole intersection of just railroads that go there, that connect you to the river, uh, and then the latest infrastructure that got laid on that was through the urban renewal or Negro removal programs, you know, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And that's the freeway in- infrastructure that got built. So Jackson uh, is one of the major uh, uh, transport stops along the 20. And the 20 is a freeway that basically goes from California all the way, you know, over across the country. Uh, 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 where is it? end? It ends, I believe, in in uh, South Carolina. Uh uh, and but the major point, like again, is, is the you know the major stops along the twenty, uh, going from from Dallas is Dallas is Shreveport, then Jackson, right, and then Macomb, then uh, uh, Tuscaloosa where the University of Alabama is, then uh, 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 Birmingham and then Atlanta. So you see this kind of just this route of you know major kind of political sites but also major historical industrial sites and the moving of these goods and services. So Jackson's economy is really structured around moving agricultural goods from the Delta and, and like wood and other stuff from the Eastern portion of the state and then shipping it off, right? Uh, and then the other kind of core component of what Jackson has grown to become as the state's capital is the seat of where, you know, most of your, your federal, state, government kind of institutions are, are housed and then all the services that come around that. Those are the things that structure Jackson's real economy. Then there's spinoffs around the trucking and transportation. and Then the underground economy, particularly sex work, which is a feeder to that trucking and transport industry. So that's to give you a real picture of what we're contending with and the space in which we're trying to like organize and transform for our community and in and, and the move a broader you know, socialist agenda.
0: And part of the reason why um, I think it's important to get that kind of an analysis is because although there's, obviously a lot of uh, particularities for Jackson that are unique to Jackson. At the same time, many of those uh, phenomena that you described absolutely apply to many cities across That's this right. country. Um, I was in Schenectady, New York last weekend, Schenectady, New York, former industrial city, Albany, New York, similarly have many of those same uh, uh, trends from the 1970s and the 1980s, leading to the sort of post-industrial, hollowed out poverty that you see in a lot of sections in places like Schenectady. And I'm saying right. that because that's where I was on Sunday. But I mean, there's many cities like that, of course. Right. Um, at the same time, Jackson is also unique because of the obvious history that you're uh, alluding to here. And we're going to take a break right now. But on the other side of the break, I want to talk about some of the events um, and uh, um some of the drawbacks that you've seen and some of the events and, and, and situations that have developed in Jackson in the last couple of years that I think illustrate some of the struggles that you're talking about. So let's take a quick break. Go over, uh, get yourself a copy of Jackson Rising Redux, Lessons on Building the Future in the Present. While you're listening to the break music, go order that book and we will be right back to continue our conversation with Callie Akuno here on Cutter Punch Radio. chatting with Callie Akuno, uh, Cooperationjackson.org is the website. You can go over to the website, make a donation, make sure you do that. Support this kind of work because not only is it important in Jackson, but as Callie was saying in the earlier part of our conversation, it's really important as establishing a, a potential model, something that can be not only uh, adapted and built upon, but can be sort of used as a starting point. I think that's really important every region every city etc has got its own unique uh circumstances and jackson is of course no exception kali tell me a little bit about recently there was a big you know headline grabbing story in jackson about the water the water system in jackson you know this made national headlines of course i think everybody knows in recent years a lot of talk about flint michigan but jackson kind of flew under the radar with COVID and many other things that were going on at the same time. I think it's really important to talk about not only the story that came out, I guess that was in 2021, 2022, but also how that relates back to those public works that you were talking mm-hmm. about at the very right. beginning of all of this. Because I know in our prior conversations that we've had, you talked about the importance of, you know, uh, modernizing the water infrastructure and, and and you know, fixing this decaying infrastructure. That hasn't happened. And here we are eight years later and Jackson has a severe water crisis. Tell us about it. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, the last. um, The beginning, the end of summer and the beginning of uh, fall. So the end of August, beginning of September. uh, Jackson's water system just basically collapsed. Now. Uh, what triggered this particular collapse uh, was some unprecedented rain, right, that we were having last summer. Uh, Jackson, you know, the the living expressions of climate change uh, in our area is that the seasons don't add up anywhere. If you look at a farmer's uh, almanac, you know, uh, anybody familiar with doing any farming you knows the farmer's almanac. Gives you the seasons, when to plant, what's best to plant, etc. Well, a lot of information is now obsolete because this this, the climate change has already majorly adjusted to, the 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 seasons in our area, and uh, it, we now have a you know what we consider real winters. Uh, some of you listening in the north might laugh at us, but you know uh, we are now uh, on the regular are getting hit by these deep uh, polar vortexes Uh, That typically come in now, uh, the end of January through February and parts of March, uh, and leaving you know uh, snow and ice uh, that that sticks. You know that Jackson has a history of parts of the South will sometimes get a little snow, but it typically doesn't last a day. Right? It melts, not anymore. Right? Uh, It sticks around for weeks. And you got to recall, we don't have the infrastructure. Like we don't have the stockpiles of salt. We don't have the power machines to move stuff off the the roads that you might find, you know, like any place north of St. Louis, I would imagine. Right. We don't have that. Uh, And there's no plan or resources to acquire it because it's still not totally construed as being normal. And the other thing now, it it rains more often uh, instead of like rains typically being uh, in April and May, they are occurring more frequently in August and July. I mean, August and September and into October, right? And then and the summers kind of move more to like August, September, October, right? Not May, June, you know, July, August, like not that period. Um, and so we just, this last year, we just got inundated and, and the, the officials like Chokwe Antar, actually the mayor Chokwe Antar did a actual press conference Two days before, like all the systems just basically collapsed and the pumps stopped working to tell people that they should evacuate certain areas because they were going to flood. So we had knowledge that this was going to happen because we've been well aware for probably 20 years now that it wasn't just a matter of if the system was going to really collapse, it's a matter of when. And the, the narrative that, that gets portrayed, particularly by the governor, the present governor of Mississippi, is you know, these black folks don't know how to manage anything, right? They don't know how to govern. Well, if somebody comes and tells you two days ahead, I would move or go look for a hotel, you know, does it mean that they've maybe made some mistakes? Yes, but they know enough and are trying to get a, a, enough to manage a crisis. To just not leave you in the lurch, like what happened uh, in New Orleans, like with Hurricane. Just to give a with Hurricane Katrina, just give you a contrast. And and because the contrast was there, the hurricane came and went. Right, what destroyed New Orleans was the flood after the hurricane, when the people did not get a warning about all those levee breaks. Well, warning was issued. Like that lesson, definitely learned by our forces, which in this case I would definitely consider Antar one of our forces. And knowing that history wanted to give a heads up. Now, why and how? Because the system has been systematically deprived of resources for 30 years. Particularly the last 10 have been uh, particularly vicious as you know, the governor, Tate Reeves, has been in control over the key levers of the allocation of resources to municipalities first you know now is the governor but before he was the governor he was the lieutenant governor and what he was able to do as a lieutenant governor for eight year period before becoming governor was basically block every request from every mayor administration around allocation of resources from the state to fix and repair jackson's water system so this is an intentional this is a, you know what resulted in what is going on now Because it's not I don't want to give anybody the impression that just because we have the the pumps are functioning now that our water is clean or that anybody should drink it. They should not. Uh, Now, some people are in a situation because of resources, the poverty I mentioned earlier, that they really have no other choice. But the system is not fixed. And we still have a major crisis on our hand, which is being aggravated by the nature of how the U.S. constitutionalism functions and works. And what do I mean by that? So in this case, you know, we have a sense of the price tag and we've had a sense of the price tag of what it would take to repair and overhaul the system in Jackson, the water system. And the basic, you know, bill for the last like four or five years has been coming in in between like six to ten billion dollars to fix and repair to do an overhaul of the system, which is actually needed. Now, keep in mind, Jackson's annual budget, no budget has ever gone over a, 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 what, uh, anywhere close to a billion dollars. I think the largest one was one of the budgets that we instituted, uh, which was close to like $800 million, right, which is a, a a borough budget, a fraction of a borough budget in New York City, right? So it should give folks a perspective. So I wanted people to, to have a sense of that, because you're talking about if we spent every penny for the next five years, we still wouldn't, of, of, of our city's total budget for the next five years, just trying to repair the water system, you could do nothing else and you still wouldn't have enough money, right? Given how money is allocated right now, what the budget is. So this is only going to really be you know, dealt with if there's some resources that come from the state, of which they should, since Jackson is, is the capital of the state, you would think, and from the federal government. Like those are the only inst- instant entities that really have that level of media resources to move around. So, Benny Thompson, you know, uh, the congressman, you know, the black congressman for the state of Mississippi, during the last kind of special appropriations before everybody went out, uh, you know, for their, all the, the, the representatives and senators. Went out for their winter break. He kind of pulled off a minor miracle and was able to basically secure about eight hundred, about close to a billion dollars to repair Jackson's water system. Right, he did some did right by the city. I don't know what all the mechanisms were, but he he tried to do right by the city. Well, guess what? Because that money cannot be directly allocated to the city, even though that was the stated purpose of how it was secured, the state of Mississippi has enacted a series of laws. This last, you know, legislative session to basically steal eighty percent of that money to reallocate it where the Republican neo-confederate supermajority wants it to go, not to the city of Jackson. Uh, and this is very similar to the dynamic, you know, which is which is structured around race and class, like it is in Flint. Uh, there are ready solutions that could have been done very early on in Flint to go back to the original water source being the most obvious one, um, you know, uh, and there, there is very clear what needs to happen in Jackson, and it's been clear, right? Uh, our public works department has a very clear knowledge of what what's broke, what needs to be fixed, how much money it would cost, uh, and this is just being systematically denied by the state, either just by not allocating resources that the state itself controls, right, through the taxes and, and resources levy. Or by the extraction and theft, and that would be—I mean—that theft of the federal resources that are coming in that have been specifically been allocated to fix Jackson's water system. So this crisis is going to go on, and part of the reason I want everybody to be clear uh, that it is—it is going to continue—is because they are trying to are, are let me be very clear the the Tate Reeves and the super you know neo the, the neo confederate. Supermajority runs Mississippi right now. They want to send a clear message and create a clear example of failure of of our political project to be a warning to anybody in any other municipality or social movement thinking otherwise. And they don't care if the city runs down over the course of the next five to 10 years because it helps them on a certain level facilitate uh, uh, more people moving out of the city because they have to. So Jackson is facing, in my view, an existential crisis. Our project, uh, the overall Jackson Cush Plan project, I think, is facing the existential crisis because number one, which we didn't talk about, the city of Jackson has been shrinking over the last decade because of our, in, I would say, our infrastructure kind of collapse, that being the public schools, that being the roads, that being you know, fewer jobs. Like all these things, the city has already been shrinking. And when you get to a situation where you can't drink the water, and your children can't drink the water because of your you know, fear of lead poisoning, fear of other contaminants, people are going to start making rational choices to move elsewhere. And they would have no problem with that. Depopulating the city, particularly getting rid of its black working class majority, or weakening its black working class majority, means that folks like like Chokwe Lumumba and Chokwe Antar Lumumba with their radical politics would not be able to get elected. So there's an intentionality to, the, to this that I want folks to be very cognizant of as to why this is being allowed to happen, why it's being perpetrated and extended in the way that it's being extended. There's an aim and objective here that the right has, and it's at our expense in trying to prove our model and our example to be a
0: failure. And it's more than just depriving Jackson of resources, isn't it? I mean, we, we read in in just in recent months about the attempts to set up essentially a white controlled political I don't know, what would we even call yeah. it? A white-controlled, segregated, political, parallel political authority? Parallel political system? How yeah. would we describe... Right. Uh, well, what we this... call it
1: apartheid. This is yeah. going to be clear, so folks understand this is apartheid 2.0. Uh, and I want everybody to know the, the bill that we're, we're referring to, or really with two bills kind of compressed into one, is HB 1020, and it passed. Right? I want folks to know it passed. And the version of it that passed... Um, not only has a special kind of cutout zone uh, primarily reserved for the white richest, you know, uh, components of the community, but it gave special police and administrative power over the courts over the whole city. And so I want folks to understand what that means is that now there's, you know, and, and I don't mean this lightly, there's an occupying army that is being prepared to take over Jackson as of July 1st, when this, this new, law that was passed as HB 1020 becomes in effect, and it is being administered and will be controlled by the governor, not by the people of Jackson, you know, who get to vote in their mayor, who supposedly supposed to control the police, have some level of control over, not by the the, the Hines County Sheriff, which is again, something somebody directly elected by the people in Hines County, which the majority of Jackson is situated. So it's the most anti-democratic expression of a power grab that you can imagine and it should be being talked about in every corner of the left in my view, because this is coming to you. Like they are, the right is just perfecting how to you know, just denude uh, the state constitutions and the American constitution of any of of the pretenses of democracy. Not that it was ever a great document truly about democracy anyway, but they are going to just strip it bare down to make sure that they can institute minority rule through all of the, the gerrymandering, all of the specific maneuvering around the courts, they are following and executing a grand strategy and they are doing a damn good job of it at the moment. We have to figure out how to regroup, rebuild the, 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 the left, you know, not on some paltry, uh, you know, weak reformist agenda, but a real radical agenda that speaks to the vast majority of working class people and oppressed people in this country to move them in a different direction. And if we don't serve as an example of why that's necessary, I don't know where it does when you really look at it and an example.
0: And, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Flint a couple of minutes ago, and it's interesting the parallel there as well, because we all remember when they brought in the quote unquote emergency manager to essentially act as a bureaucratic technocratic uh, dictatorship over and above democratically elected government. And so it seems like in a sense, Jackson is kind of like Flint on steroids here. Yeah, it's just you know they're just stepping up their game right it's a, it's just a, right? it's an evolution it's a natural it's evolution, evolution.
1: Yep. right uh, uh they experiment get away with it one area come bring in some more uh, pieces get away with another area so we we are another canary in the coal mine and it's coming to a, a city near you right and you know and, and keep in mind I mean one of the things that I think is clearly playing out particularly since 2020 and the midterm elections, the 2020 elections. I think the right has now buckled down that it's not clear whether they have the numbers and the coalition to put either a Trump or DeSantis in the Oval Office. But they were never a one-trick pony, right? And so, you know, you, you had Mitch basically running for the last, you know, 10 years in particular, and this is a strategy that precedes him by far, but he's executed masterfully you know, hijacking the Supreme Court and making it a bastion of reaction, right? With all the the tricks of the trade that you can think of, eliminating all the old gentlemen's agreements about playing fair, has no intention on doing that. So he's hijacked the court and and this, you know, empire is going to have a conservative court if things remain as they are for the next 30 to 40 years. Uh, And then they're doing another excellent job with their constitutional convention strategy, right? And they now have a solid core part of the map of having the, the, the South pretty much unlocked, and now increasingly most of the Midwest and edging more and more towards the West, right? You know, Arizona, uh, 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 New Mexico to a lesser degree, uh, but Utah, Idaho, Montana, North and South Dakota as core areas of, you know, their kind of political... Base and are very clear about, you know, effectively utilizing the already built-in undemocratic aspects of the U.S. Constitution to extend their rule. And what do I mean by that? Right, when you just look at, you know, many people tell you about uh, the Electoral College, and that's again a legacy of slavery. uh, It needs to be gotten rid of. But the other component of is this adoption of the class, you know, iteration of how this thing went down from. Their copying of the house of lords into the u.s senate and so there's no reason that a state like mississippi should have the same voting power at the end of the day in the senate as a state like california and let me tell you why mississippi only has about 2.4 to 2.5 million people in it there are more people in brooklyn right than there are in all the state of mississippi And mississippi is bigger than belgium and most of the 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 netherlands combined it's not a small place right but what they've what they've mastered is that land actually constitutes a vote within how the senate is constructed and they've mastered like we're going to take all of these states you know that 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 have kind of these low concentrations these low densities high levels of white you know populations that, that are increasingly lean more and more towards the right and consolidate them into a block to be able secure enough and they're at that threshold. They kind of been at this threshold now for like the past 60 years where they're they close to that kind of 30 state majority they need to call for this convention and then do a rewrite. And believe me, that is a real strategy. It's not some fiction. It's not conspiracy theory. This is a real strategy that the right is employing, moving more and more closer to, right? To be able to just have total control over the state apparatus which is what they're aiming at, objective. And they figured if we can't get it one way, we will get it another. So if they can't have it in the form of the president, they're gonna have it one way or another. And it's driving this country further and further down. What I've been arguing, as you know, Eric, further and further down a critical point of conflict, unresolvable conflicts that I think are leading this society directly to a civil war. And I've been putting it out for over a decade. And now, you know, it is openly on the lips of many forces, you know, many uh, uh, representatives not, you know, they used to be the friends, they're now occupying the core governing component of of what now constitutes or what's called the Republican Party. Uh, They are now the dominant players uh, in this and pushing this agenda. So folks should be very aware, don't take them lightly, take them at their word when they mean something. They mean, you know, when they say something, they mean it, they may not have the ability to execute it, but best believe they are working towards It's fulfillment, and they understand, you know, how do you build momentum and how do you play a strategic long game much better than our forces do right now, unfortunately.
0: That's such an important point, and Callie, you you bring it up, so I want to just expand it a little bit. One of the things that I've – one of the frustrating things that I – and by the way, let me back up and say I – Agree with you entirely with what you just said about where the country is headed in terms of the divisions, the conflicts, the dynamics, etc. I agree 100%. And that leads me to this question, which may be slightly controversial, but that's okay. Some of the uh, elements on the left, including people that I've, all, that I've been close to for a long time, in my view, have absolutely dropped the ball on this analysis and not understanding what the actual threat is coming from the right. Mm. Be, part of this is, and you alluded to it earlier in the, in the economic context, part of it is sort of the idea of black struggle as being centered in northern cities right and right. so and and what happens then and that is a very much a historic thing over decades many decades but what happens then is then all political conflict ultimately becomes structured around fighting against the democratic party because it is the democratic party to a large degree that dominates in most of these cities that we would be talking about right. whether detroit or cleveland or chicago or wherever and what happens then is that the analysis seems to miss What the right is today, because it's still fighting, you know, quote unquote, fighting the last war, you know, and this is not to say that Democrats are our allies. They aren't. This is not to say that Democrats aren't part of the ruling class and part of the establishment and need to be fought against. Of course, that's all that's all true. But I think that many sections of the left have really missed the threat that you're talking about, and I think to some degree, Callie, maybe it's because of your proximity, being in Jackson, and quite literally living up against these neo Confederates, that you need that that we need to popularize this idea, especially among radical uh, uh, sections of the left, that hey, the Democrats are bad; they continue to be our enemies, but you really shouldn't sleep on these motherfuckers over here because oh, you, they're going to cut you throat. Not- You better not. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I I think you're spot
0: on. I mean,
1: you know, know, I've I've been, I've had two tours in Jackson, and this is my second and the longest. Um, And being in Mississippi definitely gives you a perspective. Being in the South definitely gives you a perspective. You know, and I always frame it this way for for folks that are, you know, getting a chance to travel throughout the country. It was like, look, if you live on the coast, particularly like California, Oregon, Washington, you know, like in the, the New York, New England kind of area, you got to be very mindful to not stay in the bubble that you are, that you live in. Because the vast majority of the country is not like this urban cosmopolitan. You know, it's not that it's not diverse, but it's not New York, it's not Los Angeles, not by any stretch of the imagination. And the vast majority of people still live like in those kind of heartland uh, uh, areas. And, you know, they, they they live in worlds which are not reflected, right? When they look outside of, you know, their window, what they might see on a TV show like Friends, like that ain't what I see in Mississippi. Nothing close to it, right? And so they're really, there's not much in the mainstream kind of liberal media that speaks to my reality that is a reflection of of where and how I live, right? Like you would, if you just turn on most TV by, I mean, I'm I'm serious about this as as a commentary to get people to think you turn on most TV, you would think everybody in this country lives in a city, like a big city, right? And not like in, in suburban places or rural places. Uh, But if we don't think about them in mind and, and within the kind of the actual structural layout of how, you know, the power is, is practiced and in, in, in designed in this country. You're, you're like talking to the choir and not talking to the votes that you need to be figuring out how to be in some deeper alliance with. And there's been a great job of alienation of so many, like not just white working class folks, but there's just a lot of, you know, there, there's a growing conservative black movement. People better not sleep on that at all. You know, that is reactionary as hell. Right and is t- perfectly aligned, uh, uh, with with some of this neo, uh, federal neo fascist stuff. That may sound crazy, but it is. Um, and so being we be, having this proximity, uh, it's uh, giving me a lens. But I'll tell you, and I'll just tell the audience, you know, the thing that really got me to start really paying attention to this was was in the early 1990s. I was a student in California. Uh, and I started doing. Uh, uh micro radio getting trained in doing micro radio right setting up our own radio stations our own networks uh you know and I was trying to convince other leftists, hey we need to get now this is before the before I knew about the internet I think before it became this big public you know kind of utility in the mid mid to late 1990s. so this is before then We're saying we need our own communication mechanisms. so me, I was going to just training after training all throughout California. Uh, parts of Oregon, uh, uh, uh in, in, in Nevada for about a four year period, just getting trained up, getting the network. And you know what I started noticing then? It was like 91, 92. For every training I went to and tried to recruit like one or two people, the right, and I mean straight right, like Nazis, you know, skinheads, uh, clans folks like the ones in like Nevada and, and upstate uh, California, they were all there. And they kept, every time I, I went, you know, there would be like two of them, then four, then 10, then 20. And I'm sitting there like, "Well, we are getting, I'm just sitting there then, like we're getting clobbered here. And it just hit me even that far back. Like, A, I'm struggling to recruit my own people to see the, the value, the strategic value of having media that we can control ourselves and not be relying upon the CNNs or the commercial talk show radios and, and you know, the commercial radio that we could have and put in our community, this other side clearly saw the value of it. And that just let me know, like, okay, it, if they are the only people talking to folks in certain areas and they have a platform for five years, 10 years, they're going to naturally move people in that direction. And what I saw them do being around them like, the the, the the whole format that you see, like, Carson Tucker and all that, remember, anybody old enough would know, like, the news used to be, I hate to say it this way, like, the news used to be an actual, you know, if you turn on CNN or NBC or CBS, they actually had reporters who were, like, on site, who, like, like did things in the, in the real world and gave you a narrative. It wasn't a group of folks, you know, who uh, had a picture or two of some scene somewhere. And they just talk to you about it for an hour, right? And you may not know one fact about it. Like that is that is a format that Fox adopted from low microwave radio. And they started doing that. I watched it. They started doing that because they didn't have no resources, but they had a story to tell. They had some politics, to, you know, to get off in a world that they wanted to share. So they made up for lack of resources and actual content by just running their mouths. That became mainstream with Fox basically in the late 1990s. And they've used that formula, taken from this like from the fringes, they've used that formula to build, you know, they, they say it's weak now because of getting rid of Carlson Tucker, but they'll find somebody to replace him, you know, fairly soon and redo the formula. But it's no accident that Fox is the largest, you know, quote unquote media piece out there now from adopting this format because Fox is built upon this infrastructure that it in part, I didn't know this till later, like them and the Koch brothers were founding, I mean, were funding some of these operations of these low microwave radios. So I didn't, you know, it's like later on, you start to do research, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I was, you know, faulting my own organizing. I'm like, no, these folks was getting paid. You was out there volunteering, right? And if they can offer resources, then yeah, the more people will show up and make the training. But I could, I'd be like, hey, you can get in the car, my car and go with me but I couldn't give anybody a bus ticket or a plane ride or anything. That's what they were doing. Right. So this is a long-term strategy and it's something that I think that's what started to get me to pay attention to it. And I consume, you know, a lot and have half for now, what, almost 30 years. I consume a lot of right-wing radio a lot y'all. And I, it's been paying attention to them over the years That I was just like, I believe them in what they say about their organized because I've witnessed it with my own eyes, growing in its strength, growing in its power, growing, you know, uh, uh, in its hold over people. And I'm old enough and been around long enough to know that y'all didn't have this kind of pole position 30 years ago. You've built that. Now, you've had some major support of capital to get there, but still, there's a tremendous amount of strategy and organizing that got there but they always had this agenda. That's what I want folks to understand, right? Folks have been pushing on their side, at least the folks I got exposed, they've been pushing race war for a long time, right? And so it's no, to me, it's no accident that here we are now, 2023, and you, you have somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about the great divorce or Chuck or Tucker Carson talking about, you know, the, the the replacement theory. Like I've been hearing that on on. Right-wing radio, going back to like at least nineteen ninety-six, ninety-seven. Both of those terms, right? So uh, this has been, and people have just didn't take them seriously enough, and you can see it growing. Like people, I remember, you know, doing work in the in the mid nineteen nineties, and people didn't take Newt Gingrich, you know, uh, uh, seriously enough. And then, you know, like uh, uh, in in two thousand, when basically, you know, the the, the Bush, you know, uh, team. Basically orchestrated a mini coup, uh, and and we just kind of went on like there's nothing happened. So they've been building and aggregating this power. So it should be really on a certain level, no surprise. Like and now we everybody's kind of shocked to like to hear this stuff. Like no, we allowed this to happen by not taking ourselves and taking them seriously, right? And following into like a lot of this liberal rhetoric. Like I so like, I you know I got to stop pretty soon. But it's this this point like, you know how many decades? have we heard liberals say uh, abortion would not be touched? I'm just using that as an example, whether you agree with it or not. This was their rhetoric, it won't be touched. And if they come after it, you know, uh, uh, you know, know, we're gonna tear up the streets. And then sit there and watch, watch all these confirmations for the last 20 years, where they sit there and allow themselves to be lied to, listen to Gorsh and some of these other folks, no, I'm not gonna touch abortion. Like, did you not read their papers? Did you not understand the society that, that you know, endorsed them and what its position was, right? Did you not, it's like, how did how did you uh, lied and alluded, you know, uh, uh, gave yourselves illusions as to what was happening, what was possible, thinking that you were playing some gentleman's agreement and that was established fact. They have no established fact. They're about rule, you know, uh, uh, subject us to their rule one way or another. Majority rules means nothing to them. So yeah, I mean, it, you're right. We Most folks are still fighting the last war. And then the, the approach now that I see, which is also scares me to an extent, is like there's an awakening now uh, to like we gotta do everything to to fight the right in a way that just gives a lot more concession and power to the liberals, that also needs to be analyzed, right? Uh, and because what it, what what we're not doing sufficiently enough, we can fight the right and still build an independent politic. Right, and that is not being focused on, and that's the part that scares me, right? Is that you know we need to look at concrete examples of where it this has happened before, and it has happened before, and it's happening here now, and we better take some serious heed to the lessons to be able to
0: deal with the fight that's in front of us, not not the one that happened before. Absolutely. And I know we're just about out of time, but I just wanted to make one additional point in uh, building on what you just said. One of the differences, of course, now from 30 years ago when it comes to the right is that the right, the far right, is truly global today. That's right. It was not right. before. You. you did you not have... A far right fascist project that spanned the entire globe that had that has already captured state power several times over, whether you want to talk about Bolsonaro in Brazil or uh, Orban in Hungary or many other examples that you could point to. There is a global far right fascist movement and that uh, uh, the fascist movement in the United States is in many ways incorporated into it. And in some ways, it's it's really interesting if you look at, just as one example, anti-LGBT legislation in Russia in 2017, that right. then got exported to Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and many other countries. And many of those uh, pieces of legislation about gay propaganda and anti-trans right now, propaganda here. brought to the United States now. Right. And so in many ways, there is a sort of a cyclical far-right fascist politics that's happening globally that is also feeding into our domestic far right. Right. That's right. That's right. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a point I always they have an
1: international, we don't. And we need to be very mindful of that, right, in real time and the work we got uh, in front of us.
0: The website is cooperationjackson.org. Make sure you go there. Give your donations. This is a project that absolutely is deserving of as much support as possible. The book, Jackson Rising Redux, Lessons on Building the Future in the Present. Follow Callie on social media. I know he's doing book promotion, book events. You've been traveling around. Find Callie. Connect with him. Get involved in the movement. What else can I say? It's so, so important. Callie Acuno, as always, thank you for coming to Counterpunch and talking with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Listeners, as always, thank you again for the continued support, and we will talk to you again next time.